Welcome back to Better Than I Found It, the podcast, All Things College Golf. You're listening to Mike McGraw, the men's golf coach at Baylor University. Today's guest is longtime Florida Southern golf coach, Doug Gordon. Doug, a six-time national champion at the Division II level, is also a GCA Hall of Fame member and one of the great coaches in the history of college golf. We talk about a lot today. It's great to get his perspective on college golf at the D2 level, but he also coached at the D1 level, and he played at the D3 level. So Doug has a lot of experience in college golf. So thank you for listening today. I think you'll really enjoy this interview with Doug. All right, better than I found it, listeners, let's give a big welcome to Doug Gordon, longtime golf coach at Florida Southern. Before that, Georgia Southern uh, at Campbell. He's, he's been a little bit of everywhere, but he spent a lot of years, 23 of them, at Florida Southern, won six national championships. Uh, I got to tell you, Doug, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a, a pleasure to, I've never really interviewed a six-time national champion, so this is going to be fun for me. Well, I'm, I'm glad that we're able to do this. I'm looking forward to it. You know, Lee White was the one that uh, t- talked to me, called me up one day and said, Coach, if you're looking for any sort of, um, you know, podcast interviews for the future or whatever, I think you'd really like to coach Gordon. I think he'd be an interesting interview. And uh, I don't know, he has a lot of respect for you. And I know he's loving uh, being where he is right now, obviously, at Florida Southern. But he, he did tell me all about you. Well, he played for me for five years, and uh, he was one of these guys that uh, you loved to coach because he he never had anything given to him. He was he was a preferred walk on and earned everything he got. By the time he was a senior, he was the captain of the team and the number one player. I mean, that's that's what you dream of, right? Well, and you know, I was telling when I wrote this book, better than I found it so many years ago, about five years ago now, I was. I was going to include a chapter called uh, the magic of a walk-on and my assistant coach at the time, Ryan Black said, coach, there's not that many walk-ons who, you know, who end up making it. I mean, it's very rare. And I said, huh, I think there are more than you think. You know, I I just think there are some and buddy Alexander told me the most amazing story about a guy named John Pettit who came in, missed the walk-on qualifying one year, finally made it, finally played, ended up being a team captain that won the national championship in 1993 for the university of Florida. So uh, that's cool to hear that Lee was a walk on and and ended up being your team captain and, and really did a great job there. And pretty, it is, I guess, rare, but it's it's really cool when a walk on can do something special. It is. Yeah, it's great. Well, Hey, I got to tell you, I know all about your, your uh, success as a coach and it's very well documented and you've you've won at a ridiculous level, um, amazing job as a coach. But one of the things I didn't really know, and I wanted to kind of learn off the start here, was uh, you know how you got into the game. And I assume it was a big influence was your dad because he was also a coach. Uh, but t- talk about kind of how you got to the game of golf. Well, as you said, my dad was a coach and uh, coached for thirty nine years, and at a division three school, Ohio Wesleyan, and, you know, was a hall of famer himself, had a great career. And so I played all, all the sports, you know, when I was little, but, uh, he, he took me out to the golf course. I think when I was four or five and gave me a little club and 
you know, it, it just, it just went from there. And, uh, I played, uh, a lot of junior golf. I started playing junior tournaments when I was nine years old, if you can believe that. And we would spend the whole summer going around, uh, from tournament to tournament. And, uh, I, I like to say tongue in cheek that I was a child prodigy, Uh, but I did win a lot of tournaments from, from nine to about 13. And, and then as I say, not tongue in cheek, my game leveled off and I never got any better. (laughs) Well, you know, you have something in common with Tiger Woods. He won a lot of tournaments between nine and 13. He did win, but he kept winning. (laughs) (laughs) You stopped. Did you, was that a choice you made? I think. Well, I just, I, I still continued to play, but I just wasn't. I wasn't at the top like I was uh, when when I was nine to thirteen, but I still was competitive. And uh, I guess my greatest claim to fame, or I say it is, as a player, uh, when I was a senior in high school, we we were members, uh, original members at Muirfield Village Golf Club when it opened in Dublin in 1974, and uh, the very first tournament they held there was the junior club championship and i won it <laughs> you won the very first tournament at jack nicholas's golf course i did and uh and i i mentioned that to jack the last time i was with him and he said i kind of remember that but i'm not sure i believe it so i sent him a <laughs> clip i sent him a clipping of me holding the trophy <laughs> he was wow. there too he was you know, there because both his sons were playing in the tournament as well so yeah, you know, I'm a golf historian. I did not know that bit of trivia, but now I do. And I'm going to ask that question in a golf trivia contest when me and my other golf nerds. Who, who won the first tournament ever? Muirfield Village. Muirfield golf. Village. They're going to say Jack Nicholas <laughs> or somebody, Johnny Miller, somebody from the mid 70s, but it was you. Congratulations. Well, I'm going to say this. I don't know this part of golf trivia, but I bet there's very few father son combinations in the Golf Coaches Association of America Hall of Fame. I mean, you're a Hall of Famer. You went in in 2001. Your dad went in in the original 1980 class. A good friend of mine, Labron Harris from Oklahoma State. He was in that very first class. So uh, I don't know. That's got to be a pretty rare commodity. I I don't think there is one. If there is another father-son, I don't know it. Now, one that could happen is... uh, Bob Nye and his son Greg. I know Greg is is uh, on the ballot this year to go into the Hall of Fame. So they they might uh, be the second ones. Okay, well, I'm going to ask Greg Gross at the GCAA to do a little research because I've got to believe it's that's pretty pretty rare if if nothing else that's an amazing accomplishment, but so y- your dad was a big influence on your game and you went and played for him, that had to be a special experience. I was just talking with Buddy Alexander a few days ago, and his son Tyson played for him for four years. And, you know, Tyson just, I think, had a great finish on the PGA Tour this week. He did. I mean, he's, he did. he's been fighting so hard to, to keep at the game of golf for, gosh, 10 years now, 12 years. Uh, but he got to play for his dad, Buddy. And so what was it like playing for your dad? Well, it it was, you know, looking back on it, it was a great experience. At the time, it, it was difficult on both of us, I think, because, of course, you know, the father, the coach, doesn't want to be accused of favoritism. And uh, actually, my brother, my older brother, was on the team at the same time. He was a senior and I was a freshman and my dad was a coach. So oh, he, wow. had double, he had double trouble. 
But, uh, <laughs> you know, he said, you know, you can help me with that by leaving no doubt that you should be in the lineup. And I said, yeah, that's my goal. <laughs> but, you know, it, he, he was very fair. And, uh, you know, I, I played when I should have played and I didn't play when I shouldn't have. So, but it, it was a great experience to, to uh, spend four years being coached by him. That's great. What, uh, is your dad still alive by any chance? No, he passed away in 2018. Okay, 2018. That was your last year as coaching and coaching. Actually. It was. It was. And, uh, you know, the last thing he said to me was we were in the in the middle of the spring season, the end of March, and we were ranked number one. In fact, that's probably the best team I ever coached was my last year. And the last thing he said to me was, well, go get another national championship and 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 don't let those guys choke it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, my my guess is that your players knew that spring it was your last semester. Last oh, yeah, uh, they did. They did. Well, there probably was a little self-imposed pressure by every one of them to try to send you out a winner. Yeah, it, 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 it was tough. You know, sometimes, and as you know, being in the in the match play portion now in that match metal play, you can you can be a great team and, you know, you're a little off uh, as Tiger Woods calls match play it's a boat race and uh you know we we got beat by a great team a team that uh probably should have won it uh but you know it's just one of those things we won the stroke play and and got beat in the second round of, of uh match play you know one of my oh i don't know causes that i've had since before we went to match play so this is back in 07 08 was that I thought all of our matches should be medal match, just yeah. like Division Two is doing it now. And I think you all went to the match play format much after us, after yes. Division One. but you went in straight at medal match. And I had been preaching that because if if nothing else, you, ne- you don't have to change the format or the type of golf you're playing. And number two, every match gets to number 18. It's right. like, if I've got a three-shot lead with two holes to play – on 17 and 18 at Karsten Creek in Stillwater, Oklahoma, that's not safe. That's not a safe lead at all. So, uh, but I've always thought that that would be better in the team that's truly playing the best. And you did that week you were, you won the stroke play would probably feel like they had somewhat of an advantage. And I think that the matches have every possibility of being just as exciting as match play. I mean, everybody. There's no question. I mean, it's a very exciting format and, as you said, every every match goes to the 18th hole, and and then if uh, the tiebreaker is is even exciting, so yeah, I think uh, you know I, I I never played match metal play myself. Of course, I played match play and stroke play, and you know match play is the same type of deal. Uh, you know, you you come across somebody who's you know makes six birdies in a row, and all of a sudden the match is over, and uh, you know, over 18 holes, you, you've always got a fighting chance. So it, it all can come down to that last hole, even if you're three or four strokes down. Well, I I still am fine with the format we have because it's the only format we have. And if yeah. my guys, we got beaten match play a few years back to by the University of Oklahoma, and they won the national championship. So they were obviously one of the best teams, period. But I don't know. I would like for the NCAA to consider medal match for Division One as well. We'll see if that ever happens. They haven't yeah. listened so far. 
<laughs> but yeah. at least Division Two is doing it, so it, that we know it can be done. Yeah. Uh, so you coached at Georgia Southern. Talk to me about that experience because uh, that's uh, that was a while ago. That was in the late eighties, correct? Early. 90s. Yeah, I I went there in the fall of nineteen eighty one, mm-hmm. and uh, I was very fortunate in that uh, Buddy Alexander had been the coach previous to me, and he he left to try to play professional golf, and uh, he left me an awfully good player, Jody Mudd. Oh yeah. (laughs) And, uh, so I inherited the number one amateur in the country, my first year at Georgia Southern. And that was a lot of fun. The problem was he, he finished 20th in the masters as an amateur that year and turned pro the next day. And so he didn't finish the season. (laughs) So it didn't really help our team. Uh, but that was a great experience and 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 my experience at at Georgia Southern was really good I was able to uh you know it was a different type of recruiting there because we were a very small school back then only had 7,000 students and we're competing against you know the SEC and in the ACC bigger schools so you kind of had to be creative in recruiting and and Buddy was a master of that when when he was there you know, we went after junior college players, try to get two year players coming in and we try to sneak a, uh, what we used to call one in the bushes, one that everybody was looking past. And uh, uh, occasionally we get one of those guys that were on their way up and the big D ones weren't weren't that interested in them yet. And uh, and then uh, transfers as well. So. That was kind of the way you had to recruit at Georgia Southern back then. Now, I mean, I think they can they can recruit with anybody. Yeah, I mean, I think plus we have the transfer portal nowadays. We've got a lot right. of different things that make recruiting a lot different uh, than than when you did it. But I, I can tell you that uh, there are very few guys just hanging out in the bushes that have not learned that nobody's found out about. It just, well, yeah. I mean, there's not very many surprises anymore. Well, back then, it's, as you know, you were coaching back then. We didn't have uh, rankings and computers and everything else. We just kind of had to find it out on our own. And guys could hide in the bushes and people wouldn't know about them. Yeah. That's not that's possible the, today. <laughs> it's not really possible today. But there are some kids who get a little bit under the radar, maybe under-recruited. I also think there's kids that get over-recruited. And yeah. And I think that's not that's equally not such a great deal there because you end up getting kids that believe um, or they're they get a little bit more entitled, if you will, if that happens. I mean, just does. So Georgia Southern, great experience. You also coached another PGA Tour player, Gene Sowers. Did, you actually recruited him. Is that correct? I did. He was a he was a great junior college player at what was then called uh, a back. Uh, great junior college coach Maxie Bowles who's also in the Hall of Fame I think. oh yeah mm-hmm. and uh I also was able to get his teammate there was a guy named Rusty Strawn and I got both of them and uh Rusty just won the USGA uh senior amateur so he's 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 really coming to his own as a senior player wow but Gene was uh was a great player and uh I was fortunate to get him Georgia was after him as well. Uh, he's from Savannah. And so that was one that we were able to to sneak away from Dick Copas. 
Dick was a good recruiter. How'd you do that? Oh, man. Good job. I don't know. Good. I don't know. I didn't get many. I got two players from Dick Copas in my time at Georgia Southern that he wanted to, and Gene was one of them, and another one was a guy named Richie Bryant, who was also a first-team All-American. So I, I snuck him away somehow. I don't good know. Good for you. Good for you. Well, that's part of your legend, I guess. Um, so you were there 13 years, and then you went – to work at Florida Southern. Tell me about that transition. Or no, you actually went to Campbell first. Well, I was at Campbell first and, okay, and then before. I went to Georgia Southern. So I did go to Florida Southern from Georgia Southern. You know, at the time, Mike, the transition wasn't that much because at that time, back in the in the middle 90s, Florida Southern was really a, a Division One school hiding uh, in the classification of Division Two. They were playing a Division One schedule, not just a Division One schedule, a really good Division One schedule. Hosted their own tournament that was made up of all the good Division One teams, and so and, and you know that's when when uh, Lee Jansen was playing. That's why he said, "What are you talking about?" He was playing at a Division One school. The Florida Southern was one when he was when he was there, and when I first started coaching. So the transition really wasn't different. Uh, it was pretty much the same thing I'd been doing it at Georgia Southern, but with the advantage uh, in recruiting of, of weather and tradition, you know, being able to sell that 13 uh, uh, time national champion, you know, that was, that was pretty big. Well, at that time it was seven national championships, but that was huge. And, uh, and then a little later on about 2001, I think the NCAA came in and, made what I call the Florida Southern rule because uh, they said that you have to have to play at least uh, 70% of your schedule against the D2 competition or you couldn't play in the national championship. And, and to be quite frank, it was a tremendous advantage to Florida Southern. I mean, you know, in recruiting and, and not, not just that, but in the mentality of the player, I mean, they're competing against division one players all year. And so when we did play against Division Two, we played a couple of tournaments in uh, regular season before we went to postseason. Their mentality was, well, these guys can't beat us. You know, we're 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 beating Division One players and Division One teams. So that was huge in terms of mentality too of the player. Yeah, you know that. That rules change came on the cusp of a, a three-year stretch where you won the national championship every year. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a coincidence. I, I don't blame them. I mean, <laughs> it was an unfair advantage, and uh, but I, I took advantage of it for as long as I could. Good for you. That's smart. You, you, it sounds like to me you, uh, you understand a, a good situation when you see it and you work the deal as long as it's within the rules you work hey. it, right? Yeah, it's what I inherited, and Charlie Matlock had worked it for a long time. To his credit, you know he he was the one that got in all those Division One tournaments, and uh, you know uh, I just tried to tried to continue what he had started. Well, and you had alluded to Lee Jansen a moment ago when Lee was on this podcast a little over a year and a half ago. Uh, he said, "You know, I really didn't understand it when people would say, why are you playing Division Two golf?'" Yeah, he said. I was just playing college golf. I was going to school and studying and playing college golf. And truthfully, his was a little a little uh, shrouded in the fact that they were playing a much better schedule than most oh, D2 yeah. teams would play. Tougher oh, yeah. anyway. Yeah. Absolutely. Sure. 
So what's the biggest challenges for a D2 coach? You, you've been a D1 coach. You finished your last 23 years as a D2 coach. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges and why? Well, cer certainly recruiting. Uh, you know, a lot of D2 coaches uh, go international because, you know, international players, as, as my, my friend Andrew uh, Danis used to say, he was at Lynn. They don't, mm -hmm. they don't care what division you are. They just want to come to Florida and play college golf. And uh, so, you know, you're able to get a, a, a good program really quick if, if you can get some good international players. And most of them are pretty good. You just got to know who they are. Uh, I never went that route. I had a couple of international players, but I chose to, to try to recruit American players and uh, it was a challenge. Again, I had, to, and it was back really for a long time before the rankings, I had to uh, use my contacts and use my knowledge and try to find guys that some Division One schools were recruiting. But the thing that I had to had to sell to them that, that a lot of the Division Ones that were recruiting them didn't was, well, you can come here and play for a national championship every year. And you know, Division Two National Championship, Division One National Championship doesn't make any difference. It's a national champion. You're on a national championship team, and that's going to make you think like a winner. So that was kind of my pitch when I was recruiting these these Division One players, and I was able to get quite a few of them uh, that that were being recruited by Division One schools. And again, being in Florida helped. I didn't get many from that. University of Florida and Florida State and schools like that were recruiting, but I got ones that uh, were being recruited out of state uh, by out of state teams. How did you get Jeff Clout? That's a pretty pretty big boy. Win that's right a, that's a good story. Uh, Jeff was one of these guys that was good, but he wasn't one of the top top players. But he definitely was good, and he was being recruited by some division one schools. Uh, both his parents uh, were university of Florida graduates. For some reason, university of Florida didn't recruit him that hard. <laughs> I think I'm glad they didn't because he would have gone there had, had they done it. Uh, but university of North Florida was recruiting hard and he was from right there in Jacksonville where it is. And, uh, you know, he, he told me that he was going to go there. He, he really liked Florida Southern, loved his visit, liked me, I guess. But he just had grown up about uh, around UNF golf. And uh, he ran into Rock Immediate, who was living up at TPC at the time. And uh, so Rocco said to him, well, Jeff, where are you going to go? And he goes, well, I love Florida Southern. But he said, I think I'm going to stay at home and go to UNF. And uh, now this is Jeff telling the story. And Rocco just looked at him and he goes, you want to be a professional golfer? And Jeff goes, yeah. And he goes, well, you better go to a school that produces them. So you better go to Florida Southern. He changed his mind and went to Florida Southern. So Rocco <laughs> helped me out on that one. <laughs> yeah, Rocco and Lee Jansen. And they had quite a few golfers back in the 80s that were, uh, they ended up playing the tour and went in majors and went in tour events. And so, so essentially Florida Southern has been strong for 45, 50 years, 45 years. Oh anyway. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of coaches up North would love to have the, the weather you guys have down there. That's pretty nice. 
Yeah, I, I used to recruit against Jim Brown a lot at Ohio State just because I had so many contacts in Ohio. And, and uh, he, he used to tell the guys that we were both recruiting, which he needed to. Oh, you don't want to go down to Florida. You, you'll have to play every day and you need that two month break. That'll make you a better player. <laughs> I said, I said, Jim, it didn't work against me because I was able to say, well, I played up there in Ohio for 22 years and you don't need that break. You need to get down here and play. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because Jack Nicholas has often said, you know, he played basketball in the winter, just was yeah. great. He, he needed the break. It was, it was cold outside and snowy. And so he always made it sound like a good thing, but truly I've seen enough snow in my life. And uh, we've had it. I have to eight and a half years at Baylor. I think we've had snow twice that was significant, and that was still too much for me. And you know, I just anytime I see a snowstorm headed this way, I'm driving to Houston. If I can get to Houston, I don't think they're going to have snow there. No, so, golfers don't like snow unless we're skiing. Yeah, and I don't even like that. So I'm, <laughs> I'm just not a fan of being cold and just the the cold part of it I don't like it so I should have been born a lot further south but I wasn't um so I know you still keep in touch and connect with Lee White tell me how how uh, how much pro, you know do you have any sort of input with him or does he call you for with questions or any of that yeah I I I made it a point when Lee took over just because I mean, I did the same thing, taking over for a guy that won seven national championships. That's not an easy thing to do. And I wanted him to not be in my shadow as much as I could help that. So I told him, you know, I'm I'm going to stay away from the program. You're not going to see me. You're not going to hear from me unless you want to. And so I have never, uh, you know, approached him. Now, he does from time to time reach out to me you know on certain certain things he's going through and you know i'm there to help him as as much as i can but to his credit uh you know he's he's tried to stand on his own two feet and do this himself and uh you know he's he's uh he's really working hard and uh i think eventually he's he's going to get some breaks here and some recruiting breaks and he's had a tough time a couple of times with He's identified some really good players and and got them, and then those D one swoop in, you know. And uh, <laughs> as you said, it's tough. There's nobody you can hide anymore. You and, can't hide anymore. But you know, I'm glad to hear you did that for Lee when I took over for Mike Holder. There you at go. Oklahoma you State. know what it's like. Yeah, he he told me the day I got the job. He said, Mike, I'm going to be invisible for at least two years. You will not see me. And yeah. he was in town. You know, he was on campus. He was going to be at Carson yeah. Creek. He said, my players, your players will not see me. This is your program. Labor and Harris did that for me, and I'm going to do that for you. And he was true to his word. Never saw him. Um, I asked him. We had a great team, and we were getting ready to head off to Nationals. And I asked Mike if he would come speak to the guys. I thought he played in three of them. He coached in 32. <laughs> There's, there's got to be a, something he's going to say to these guys that would inspire them, and he did a great job. It was really, really well done, and and that's I, he he said, Are "You sure?" And I said, "Yes, I want you to come talk to him." And and I think that was good, good thing on my part because it was like, you know what, he's he can certainly give them something. But the the thing I loved most about it was 
I didn't see him otherwise that first couple yeah. of years. No, he wasn't that, I, I think that's a good thing to do if, if you're going to be around, you know, and uh, because you're, you're hit up all the time, as I'm sure Mike Holder was, if he was in town there, well, what do you think? How do you think he's doing? What, you know, and you just got to kind of say, you know what? He's doing his thing and you just got to stay out of it, you know, and do your own thing. Okay. Well, very well done. I know Lee's going to do a great job there. He's a really, really good young coach. So um, what did you do in qualifying through the years? And I mean, I know that every coach kind of evolves and changes and qualifying changes based upon your team makeup and, you know, how large a team you have, how great a team, whatever. But did you ever do anything really creative that you'd like to share in, in qualifying? You know, we when you're in it long enough, you try about everything. And uh, I remember one time, uh, probably the most unique thing I did. I'm sure other coaches have done it. Uh, it was it was on a very cold day. I knew the conditions were going to be tough, and it was early in the year. It was in January, I think. And uh, I didn't want the guys to go out there and qualify in that day and shoot eighty something, you know, and just bust their egos coming right out of the gate, uh, you know, in, in the first qualifying of the year. So I didn't tell them, and we got out there, and I said, boys, we're, we're not playing from the tips today. We're going to play from the post, which was about 6,400 yards. And normally the course played about 7,100. And uh, I had a very – I had the number one player in Division Two that year, John Curley. And uh, he shot 65 and the scores were, were pretty good. Surprisingly, because, you know, they had to adjust on the fly. They'd never played from there. And you know, that showed me something too, how quickly mentally they adjusted to a totally different golf course. But uh, I remember Curly came over to me and I said, what'd you shoot, John? And he goes 65. And he said it just like that, like he was <laughs> mad. And I said, well, why are you mad about that? He goes, we shouldn't have been playing from there. And I said, did you enjoy shooting 65? He goes, kind of. And I said, well, that's the point right there. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that's that's probably I, – I think one time I just remembered it. One time, I don't know if it was a qualifying round. Maybe it was. I played without pins in the green. Mm -hmm. You ever do that? I've done that one time, and, and uh, <laughs> that's that's a good one. That's a really good one. And, and a lot of them hit it close because they don't know where the pin is. <laughs> they can aim to the center of the green. That's one thing that doesn't change is the center of the green never changes. Exactly. exactly. It's always there. It's always there. So, you know, a lot of coaches ask me, especially young coaches, you know, what should I do in qualifying this, that, the other thing? I said, you know, especially early in the season, don't be afraid to upset somebody or don't be afraid to knock them back on their heels. Don't be afraid to shock their system because – the truth is every single tournament you play in, something shocking and unusual and surprising happens anyway. Oh, yeah. So sure. Why wouldn't you try to prepare them a little bit for that? Yeah. And, and one of the things that I had never thought about this way, but my assistant, Mikel, uh, he agrees with that, shock the system, whatever, but he says every final round of a qualifying we, let's let's overspeed it, make it a lot easier, make it so they're going into the tournament with a great amount of of confidence and feel like they shoot a low number. I had never thought about it like that. I just thought uh, if I'm going to give them a hard time, it doesn't matter when it happens. But I feel like he's right. When we're getting ready to go to a tournament, a bunch of 81s and 79s 
because I did something hard in qualifying. Probably not a good plan. Yeah. Well, you brought up Mike Holder. I know he was famous for uh, calling a qualifying round in the worst weather day that he could find. And, uh, you know, there, there's some merit to that, I think. I don't think I'd do it all the time. But it, it shows, to me, it, it showed me who's going to who's gonna grind it and who's going to quit when the conditions get tough. And certainly you want to know that as a coach. Yeah, I think so. In fact, that reminds me what Bear Bryant said. He said, I, I made practices harder than games because if, if they're going to quit, I want to find out in Tuscaloosa, not on the road when we're playing. It's so, interesting. I, I don't want to divert, but since you brought up Bear Bryant, you well, know, he we're going to divert because I'm going to ask you, we both have something in common. We worked as an assistant at Alabama, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, he was the athletic director at Alabama and the football coach when I was there my two years. In fact, I was there for, for uh, his last national championship, which was kind of special. But uh, as a young, a young, you know, graduate assistant coach, I used to go up to the Coliseum, which is where his office was, to get Coach Railing's mail. And I'd do it at 6 o'clock in the morning because I knew Coach Bryant was going to be there and he'd be the only person in the building. So I was hoping that he would see me and invite me into his office from time to time. Well, he did. Oh, wow. And, and, and those were some conversations. You know, you talk about an influence on me as a coach that uh, I never forgot as a coach. And uh, one of the things that he told me one time, uh, I asked him what he looked for in, in a recruit, in a player. And he, he said, I don't want those guys that are what, I don't think he used the term blue chip, but the very best players. He goes, I want those guys that are on their way up. And he put his hand going up this way. And uh, I never forgot that. And, and, you know, I was never at a school really where I could <laughs> recruit the number one junior player in the country. But he, he said to me that those guys that are the blue chip players or the number one high school players sometimes, in his view, aren't coachable. And he goes, I want guys that I can coach that are coachable. And so I never forgot that in my recruiting. And I recruited a lot of guys that were on their way up and, and they were coachable, very coachable. But the story I wanted to tell about Coach Bryant, since you brought it up in terms of making his practices tough, he also was one of these guys that, which Nick Saban's the same way, uh, that isn't pleased with just winning. He, you know, he didn't, he wanted to win the game. But that wasn't his ultimate goal. He wanted you to play the very best that you could play. And if you didn't, he wasn't happy with you. And they played their home games back then up in Birmingham because the stadium in Tuscaloosa didn't hold enough people. So they were playing Southern Cal up there. Uh, this was when I was there. And, you know, you got to go up I-59 to get to Birmingham and all the way back. So, uh they beat Southern Cal at the last second and coach Bryant, they're heading back to the locker room. And uh, he tells the assistant coaches, no showers, take them straight to the buses in their full gear. And the coaches are going, okay, this is going to get interesting right here. <laughs> coach Bryant wasn't pleased with the way they play, even though they won. So they get about, 
30 miles outside of Birmingham going back to Tuscaloosa. And th this will show you how much power Coach Bryan had in the state of Alabama, too. And the state troopers are escorting them back. And, of course, you got two lanes on one side, two lanes on the other, and a big median in the center. He stops the buses about 30 miles outside of Birmingham, and he tells everybody to get out. Go get in the median the grass median, and he conducted a practice for 45 minutes in the median of the interstate. <laughs> so there you go about expecting excellence. Well, <laughs> and he and taught me a lot about that, too. I love that. I mean, it's it's obviously you'd have a hard time getting away with something like that today. That's different, <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. World, different where we live in, but, but the expectation is, why are you worried about winning the game why don't you just worry about playing the best you can possibly play right, and right. You, you and you might do that and lose but but at exactly. least you gave it everything you had and, and you did your preparation i think bobby knight was that way i i don't agree with everything bobby knight did as a coach but but um it was also a different day and time but he did demand excellence out of you and your kids went to class and all of that so i think there's a there's a certain standard when the standard is excellence and your best, not the best, but your best, I think I think you get a whole lot more out of it. So well, and, and as a coach, I always tried to do that. I I expected excellence. The the players knew what was expected of them, and it, as you said, sometimes you can play as good as you can possibly play. And I had teams do that, and we got beat. And I. I wasn't displeased. I mean, no, I was pleased with the team and, and told them that. We got beat. There you go. On the other hand, we won tournaments uh, that I was not happy with the performance. And a lot of my former players can tell you a few stories, Lee being one of them, about some of the things I did. Uh, I guess I will tell one on myself. This is one of the favorite ones they like to tell. I had a really good team in uh, – 1999 we won the national championship that year by 32 shots mm, mm. it was stroke play and uh we expected to, that's still when we were playing the d1 schedule so we expected to win every d2 tournament that we played in no question about it so we went up to valdosta country club for a regular season event one of the ones we played in and that's where the national championship was also being held that year uh and we we uh, finished second. We didn't win the tournament. I forget who won, but we didn't win. So uh, I didn't do exactly what Coach Bryant did, but kind of the same thing. So we're about, uh, I don't know, 10 miles outside of Valdosta, heading back on I-75 to, uh, to Lakeland. And uh, Jeff Clouck actually was on that team, and he was sitting in the passenger seat beside me. And, you know, they gave us a second place plaque or trophy. I don't remember what it was, something second place on it. And, uh, I turned over to Jeff. We're driving down the interstate. And I said, Jeff, roll your window down. He goes, why, coach? He goes, it's it's not that hot in here or whatever. I said, just roll the window down. And so he rolled it down. And I picked up that second place plaque or whatever and threw it out the window <laughs> and I turned around into the team and I said, that's what we think about second place here. Wow. So that we won the, we won the, the conference, the regional and the national that year. 
and won nationals by 32. Yeah. So just basically making a statement about, you know, this is what you guys are expected to do. You're capable of doing it. So let's do it. Now, the thing I felt bad about was uh, probably the mower that hit that in the median was not real good. Plus, it had Valdosta State's name on it. So, Well, I will say this. The statute of limitations has probably got you protected. It's, <laughs> it's been 23 years. You're probably okay on that one. Okay. Now, you mentioned Bear Bryant and something he taught you, which I thought was really good, by the way. Thank you for that story. But uh, aside from Bear Bryant, and perhaps your dad what's what's the best thing you ever learned from another coach like guys you competed against or recruited against or coached against best thing that's that's a tough one because i was fortunate to be around a lot of great coaches and teachers in the game too uh i guess you know i used a lot of conrad railing stuff uh the hall of fame coach from alabama who i worked for for two years in my coaching and uh one of the one of the things that that he used to say to me all the time and I always tried to remember you know he was he was interested certainly in winning but he was also very interested as interested if not more interested in the total development of the individual and I tried to be that way as a coach too and he used to tell me Doug you've got to remember uh I'll try to clean this up because he was quite a colorful person. Okay. Uh, you've got to remember that you're working with 18 year old, immature, and then he used a, a bad word. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, be tough on them, but give them a chance to mature and they'll win for you. And I never forgot that. So that was one of the best pieces of of, of advice I ever got as a coach because as coaches you know sometimes we tend to get a little impatient you know with the development of a player and you know you just as long as they're putting the work in on the right things not just putting the work in but putting the work in on the right things for them and uh you know they're they're giving it their maximum effort you just you just gotta wait on them. you gotta wait and if you do a lot of times those guys win for you and they develop. They do. And, you know, it, it's very tempting when kids shoot an 80 or three putt the last three greens or whatever it is, and we don't win the tournament or something doesn't happen. That's, you know, it's tempting to kind of get upset at them. And a young coach asked me, he says, how do you handle it when, you know, a player really messes up and you lose a golf tournament? I said, well, you know, I, I'm like anybody else. I'm a competitor. I want to win. I don't like losing. I don't like throwing it away, certainly. But the truth is I'm culpable in this whole deal, too. You know, part of this is on me. I evaluated this player initially. I recruited this player. I signed this player. I'm coaching this player. And I picked the team this week. It's yeah. like, how can I not have some responsibility here at all? So when I think of it from that perspective, then I remember, okay, little Jimmy Smith or whoever it happens to be, uh, he didn't mean to do that. And yeah, you're right. I got to wait on him sometimes to learn it a little slower than other guys learn it. But I just can't, I can't get over a coach who thinks he has no culpability at all in this kid's 81 that he just shot. You're partly yeah. responsible. So exactly, exactly. I, I I didn't look at it like that as a young coach, though. I would get really upset when they didn't do what they were supposed to. 
and I'm still not happy with bad golf. I don't like bad golf, but like I like to tell people, you know, I played enough bad golf to become a coach. So I played that much bad golf. <laughs> That's true. We know how to play bad golf and we can appreciate it. We do. So tell me how many former uh, players have actually played the PGA tour that you've coached, whether it well, was at Georgia Southern. At, at, at Georgia Southern, uh, you know, I, I say Jody Mudd. I didn't really coach him. I inherited him his last year, but he did play the PGA tour and uh, Gene Sowers, who I, I did recruit and coach at, at Georgia Southern. Uh, and then at Florida Southern, Jeff Clout, who we just talked about, and uh, uh, Travis Perkins, who played the tour for a couple of years and, and then uh, went into caddying. And he's caddied for, gosh, I don't know, five or six different players on the PGA Tour. And uh, now he's with, with Sam Burns and doing quite well with Sam Burns. That, Sam, that's a good bag to be on Sam's right won now. quite a few tournaments and Travis got on his bag. So Travis must be doing something right. Uh, but uh, And then John Vanderlaan, who's currently on the Corn Ferry Tour. So that's that's it so far on uh, Florida Southerns. Yeah, still a, a wonderful run. Congratulations on that. Uh, yeah, what do you – you know, we, we've mentioned this. You've probably already answered this, but um, who would be your greatest coaching mentor and why? Let, let's leave your dad out of this. And we know he was a great mentor for you, obviously, as a coach. But any other mentors, guys that actually helped you out along the path, along your journey that made you a better coach? Yeah, I would I would say uh, uh, Conrad Railing at Alabama and uh, Rod Myers at Duke, who actually played for my dad at Ohio Wesleyan. And uh Rod was Rod was a very close friend of mine and you know gave me a lot of a lot of good advice on on coaching and uh, then a, a person outside of coaching but a great teacher uh, uh, Jim Flick and Bill Strasball Jr. and Bob Toski uh, all three of them gave me a lot of great advice on how to deal with young players and uh, both from a coaching standpoint and from a, a teaching standpoint. Boy, that, that's some pretty heavy names. You, you, yeah. How did you run across those? Well, guys? my dad was, uh, you know, he was he was a pretty big person in golf, and he he used to go. I don't know if you ever heard of an organization called the National Golf Foundation. Oh yeah, and they used to run seminars in the summertime for coaches, and my dad was was on the staff, and so they would bring in coaches like him, and then great teachers like Strasball and Flick and Toski and. So that and I would go with my dad to all these as a young kid, and uh, so I I got to know them uh, very well at at these uh, seminars and stuff. In fact, I'll tell you a quick Bob Toski story. I, in fact, I saw him at the Masters about five years ago, and I I tried to remind him of this, and before I could get through the story, he completed it. He remembered it. <laughs> but he came out to the Arnold Palmer Golf Academy in 1968 in Vail, Colorado, which my dad was teaching in, just to give a clinic. And uh, he uh, he went to dinner. My dad invited him over to our condo to have dinner. So he came over and had dinner. And the Vail Golf Club was right beside the condo. So I'm I'm uh, I'm 12 years old, and again. At the, well, as I told you at the beginning, I'm in my child prodigy stage now. You know, I'm winning all kinds of tournaments as a junior golfer. So I'm pretty cocky. 
And uh, so we're sitting at dinner and, and uh, Toski's Toski's pretty cocky too. And he's talking about how great he hits a golf ball, which he did and how great a putter he is and this and that. And finally, I'd had enough of it as a 12 year old. And I said, well, Mr. Toski, after dinner, you want to walk over to the putting green at Bale golf club and, and we'll just have a match and we'll see who wins. So anyway, make the story short. I beat him and uh, I never let him forget it. And and he remembered it, you know, 50 years later when I saw him at the Masters five years ago. But he was great. Toski was a great teacher, is a great teacher still. And, uh, you know, a, a great coach as well. One of the originals. You know, I think that a lot of great teachers from way back then would have made really good college golf coaches. Uh, yeah. I, I really believe that. And uh, one of the things that – one of the reasons why is because I think they uh, they love teaching the game, but they also play the game. And right. if you've played the game and taught the game, you might make a pretty good college golf coach, I would think. I think so. I think you would. Absolutely. What do you miss most about coaching? Oh, man. Uh uh, you know, what everybody says, and I agree with them, I miss the relationship with the 18 to 22-year-old guys and watching their development as golfers and as people. I I really enjoyed that process, even though there's some hardship that goes along with it. Uh, so I, I miss that the most. And and uh, seeing, seeing the other coaches, uh, you know, you, you develop as you have, I know, great friendships in the game. And, you know, you just don't see those guys anymore when you're not going to tournaments and and you're not going to the coaches' conventions and that kind of stuff. So that's – and being around the college setting, you know, I, I grew up around the college setting with my dad being a coach. And so I was on a college campus my whole life, and, and I miss being on a college campus as well. Yeah, I, th- I would think that's something I'm going to miss a big time. Just being around around people that make you feel younger. I mean, youthful, for exactly. sure. Um, and just watching them kind of go through what you went through and and how they navigate that whole process. I'm going to miss that. I know. I don't know when my day's coming, but it is coming. All right. I didn't ask you this. I meant to earlier. What was the uh, most memorable moment of those six national championships that you won? It has to be something that stands out like, I'll never forget that. <laughs> well, they're all memorable. But uh, oh, one thing, um, goodness. That's okay. You, you, you know what sticks out in my mind, and it really shouldn't, are the close ones that we lost. Okay. And and those were memorable. So I'll I'll talk one about that. I'll, I'll never forget that as as long as I live. Uh, Rob Oppenheimer, who's who's played the PGA Tour, and uh, there's another D two player who's had quite a great career. Played at Rollins uh, in 2001, or excuse me, 2002. We were still playing stroke play, and uh, we came down to the last hole tied with Rollins and Cal State Stanislaus. And uh, so it was between the two number one players. My guy was Steve Paramore, and Rollins' guy was Oppenheimer. And uh, Rob hit it on there about 30 feet behind the hole on the 18th hole, and, you know, there's huge crowds around the green. And and my guy 
just missed the green to the left, and he hits first and almost chips it in. Hits it about three and a half feet past. So Rob's got this thirty footer to to win the national championship, and he made it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I told him that was the greatest putt I'd ever seen under pressure in my lifetime, and I had seen a few of them, but uh, that was ex- exciting for them, not so exciting for us. Uh, but I I would probably say my national championships. Uh, the first one was uh, was probably the most memorable, and that was played out in your old territory, out at Oak Tree in Oklahoma. Oh yeah, very difficult golf course, and uh, you know that was that was special because we were behind going in the last day, and we came from behind, and I think won it by about ten. So that was that was probably my most memorable moment as a coach, but they all were memorable, all champ, all the championships. I should have come and said hello to you. I was actually out there that day. I was still really? a high school golf coach. Yeah. One of my former players, Jeff White was playing for Abilene Christian. I, and, I remember Jeff. And he was there and uh, Dax Johnston, who I'd taught when he was Dax. younger. Yeah, Boy, Dax me. was a really good player. Wonderful player. Yeah. Okay. Good memory there. Well, okay. I'm going to ask, what would you change about collegiate athletics? This might be a little tough question, but what's one thing you would say? Yep, I would change that. Oh, uh, there's no question. Unfortunately, I didn't have to deal with it. The portal. I'd never have a portal. I I just think you know, as a coach, uh, shoot, you you're you're powerless, really. You know, and I don't think any coach ever wants to feel that way. And it just amazes me that the guy doesn't even have to tell you he's he's transferring. You find it out by looking at the portal. That's the part that bothers me. I mean, I'm not I think everybody deserves a chance to be happy and have a good situation. And some situations aren't good. So maybe a transfer is necessary. But it's conflict resolution. I mean, I don't agree with what the coach does or he doesn't agree with me or whatever. Let's work this out man to man. Right. We're missing a big step for young men 18 to 22. Right. Even if I they do want to leave. 100%. Yeah. But I I'm not getting much ground uh, any uh, groundswell on that one either. I, I keep on preaching it. It's just like that's a great opportunity to teach a young man, okay, I don't agree with what coach McGraw is doing. So I should go talk to him. Maybe I'll bring my parents along, but either way I'm going to I'm going to go talk to him and see if we can't work this out. If we can't I'm going to move on, but that way I have a chance to talk to him as well. Be a man about it. You know, being, it's just like being an employee and not getting along with the boss. I mean, you know, if you get a job after college, you're going to have to learn to deal with those situations. And as you said, it's a great learning opportunity to learn how to deal with it as a young person in college. And I don't know how you dealt with it as a coach before the portal, but when I had a guy that was thinking about transferring, that was always the way we handled it. And if we couldn't resolve it, I was the type of coach that I wanted what what the player thought was best for him. And I never had a problem giving a player a release, you know, it, it, as long as, as we'd gone through the process first and talked it through. Well, and I think that's part of what – one of the things I take a little bit of pride in is I've only had two – transfers out of my program of kids I, I recruited in my entire career. Just two That's kids that I recruited left. And 
I, now, some other kids that I inherited when I got to a place maybe weren't right for whatever. But, but the idea is you want to fight for those relationships. You want right. to fight for them. And, you know, and I'm partly responsible because if I got the wrong kid in here or I don't have a good environment for him or I did, I maybe over under evaluated. He's not as good a player as I thought he once could be. But the, regardless, uh, there needs to be man to man. We have a talk and we talk about it. I agree with you. I think if I could change one thing, at least about the portal would be that one thing. Yeah, I, I can't believe that a majority of coaches like the portal, but apparently they must. I guess they like it when they get a player. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I'm not against a kid wanting his best opportunity and to, you know, to thrive and flourish in a, an environment. But anyway, you, we might do a better job if the portal didn't exist of uh, evaluating in the recruiting process. I think we yeah, do a much better job. Sure. That's for sure. Well, listen, Doug, thank you so much for uh, spending an hour with me today, just giving us some wisdom. Um, as I said, I've never co- or recruit interviewed. I've never interviewed a six-time national champion, so that was a lot of fun for me to get your perspectives on coaching, not just Division II golf, but just coaching golf. Uh, you've had an amazing career, and and uh, I'm now glad that my Better Than I Found It listeners know a little more about you. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to come on, and I wish you and Baylor the, the greatest success. And uh, hang in there and coach. Some of us old guys need need to stay in it a little bit longer. I'm, I'm going to hang in there as long as they'll have me. How about that? Okay. All right. Well, thanks again, Doug. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks.